Hello and welcome to a Taylor's Tales podcast. This is Chris's Corner. I'm your host, Chris Taylor, and I'm back this week with a brand new podcast and a brand new guest. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Hi ho, Kermit the Frog here. Damn it, we got the wrong JP. Bring in the real one. Hi, kiddo. Ah, here we are, Dr. Peterson. Well, welcome to the show, and uh, you are a doctor of psychology and a contemplator of life. What do you think the real meaning of life is? What is reality? There's this old Taoist symbol, yin and yang symbol, mm-hmm. eh? So there's a black serpent, and it has a white dot in it, and there's a white serpent, and it has a black dot in it, and they're tail to tail. And that whole symbol is Tao. And Tao means a bunch of things. It means potential. It means the way of life. So to live in Tao is to live in the proper manner. And you kind of live on the border between the black serpent and the white serpent. And then you say, well, what are those two things? Well, they're the two, they're the two ultimate um, categories of reality, yin and yang. Well, how would you translate that into English? Order is when you're where, what you're doing is producing what you want to have happen. Okay, so why is that orderly? It's because you can predict it. Mm-hmm. You do A, and you want B to happen, and B happens. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means you know where you are, you know what you're doing, and things are working. Mm-hmm. And then you're calm, because there's nothing to be nervous about, and you're moderately happy, because mm-hmm. you're getting what you need and want. And there's evidence that you are competent, because that's why things are working. Mm-hmm. That's order. Now, everyone knows that order can be shattered into disorder at the drop of a hat. You can be walking down the street, and you're all happy, and you're with your partner, and, you know, she makes a mistake and steps off the curb, and a bus hits her. It's like, in one second, you mm-hmm. are not anymore in order mm-hmm. like the bottom has fallen out of your life and that's why there's a black dot in the white serpent it's like mm-hmm. orderly as it is look the hell out because mm-hmm. your life can be flipped upside down in a moment right okay well then sometimes you're in a dire straight state and everything looks absolutely hopeless and you get a new realization and bang you know everything snaps together and so that's when you're in chaos and order can reveal itself mm-hmm. okay so order and chaos you can think about it as you're, the ice that you skate on with the, with the water below, that's another way of thinking about it. Um, now you say, well, is that real? Is it really that the world is made out of order and chaos? Well, here's something weird. You have two hemispheres, right? And hypothetically, they were selected by the processes of natural evolution, right? They were selected by reality. Well, you have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere. So it's kind of like, well, reality must have two elements because why would you need two hemispheres otherwise? And they do have relatively separate consciousnesses, those mm-hmm. two hemispheres. Think, well, okay, we've been selected to have this bifurcated view of reality. Well, what, what are they specialized for? Turns out the left hemisphere is specialized for those places where your routines work. That's the left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is specialized for all those places you go when you don't know what you're doing. So the left hemisphere is specialized for order, and the right hemisphere is specialized for chaos. And so then you might think, well, does that mean that the world being is really made out of order and chaos? It's like, well, if you use the Darwinian logic, that's what it means. Now that we know what the meaning of life is, Jordan, how do we deal with demons that lurk within it, such as alcoholism and substance abuse? Alcohol is pretty good. Yeah. So you better find something a lot better, <laughs> man. Yeah. And and it is. And then esteemable people do esteemable things. It's like, yeah. Well, you want to figure out. You want to figure out something that you're doing with your life that's worth not getting drunk and screwing up. Yeah. Right. 
because that's fun. So what do we replace alcohol with? Maybe you need to, you know, take an adventurous trip now and then. You got to have something there that, that that's that's edgy to replace that. Ah, so you need an adventure when you're replacing alcohol and substances. So what do you think, Dr. Peterson, people's reaction is when you're trying to put your life back together? Because if you're starting to put your life together and you have friends that object, those are not friends. Those are just people you know. They're not friends because a friend is someone, this is one of the hallmarks of a friend. Here's two hallmarks. Mm -hmm. A friend is someone you can tell bad news to. And they won't tell you why you're an idiot and they won't interfere with your suffering. They'll just, they'll, just, they'll just listen and maybe they'll suffer along with you. Mm. Okay, so you can tell bad news to them and they won't tell you some worst thing that happened to them. They'll listen mm. and they'll suffer along with you. But a friend is also someone you can tell good news to. And the friend will say, wow, in this veil of tears, something good happened to you. Great, man. Congrats. I'm wonderful. It's rare. It's unlikely. Good for you. I hope 10 more things like that happen. And they're not envious and they're not jealous and they're not one up on you. And if you're trying to get your life together, it's actually, if you're trying to get your life together and your friends get in the way, that's actually real useful for you because you've now identified who your friends aren't. Mm. And you might think, well, I can't give them up. It's like, oh yes, you can. And not only can you, you should, and it would be better for them. Because if they're aiming down and they want you going down with them, there's nothing good about what's happening to them, and there's certainly nothing good about that for you. So we avoid those who are going down the dark path, Dr. Peterson. But what about us, who are neither on the light path yet, because we haven't found it, but we're not going down the dark path either? Where do we, what do we do when we're in the lost space in between? You're somewhere, because you have to be somewhere. Now, you might not know where that is, which means that the somewhere that you are is chaotic, in which case you need to go over your past in great detail and figure out where you are. It's like you're lost, right? You're, you're lost, and the problem with being lost is when you're lost, you don't know where to go, and the problem with not knowing where to go is there's a million places that you could go, and a million places is too many places for you to go without dying. So being lost is not good. So you need to know where you are. One of the things that we built online, my partners and I, is this program called Past Authoring that helps people lay out the, the, the narrative of their past to identify, to break their life down into six stages, epochs we call them, and then to identify the emotionally significant moments in each epoch and to write them out, what happened negatively, what happened positively, what the consequences were, what you derived from it, perhaps what you could have done differently, perhaps what you learned from it, all of that, so that you can narrow in, zero in, on determining precisely where it is that you are right now. And people are often loath to do that because they actually don't want to know because they'd rather be spread out in a sort of half-blind manner in the fog, hoping that the place that they're at is better than it really is and deluding themselves by remaining vague than to figure out, I'm right here right now with these specific problems. But it's actually better to, to do that because if you have a set of specific problems and you've really narrowed them down and really specified them, then you can probably start fixing them and you can start fixing them in micro ways, bit by bit, but there's no way you can do that without knowing where you are, it's impossible. By being precise in our speech and knowing our place in the world by analyzing our past, what do we avoid in the future? Some happy little place where you know someone's feeding you peeled grapes. That isn't what it is, it's, it's more like, 
It's more like victory on the honorable battlefield or something like that. Well, what's your vision for retirement? Well, I see myself in the beach, you know, some tropical country drinking margaritas. And I thought, uh, first, that's not a plan. That's a travel <laughs> poster. It's like, okay, let's, let's walk through this. All right, so you go down to this tropical country and you go sit on the beach and you have a margarita. It's like, okay, well, how many margaritas? Like 10? Okay, so you're going to do that. What, you're going to do that for six months? Yeah, well, you'll be this, like, pathetic, sunburned, like, yeah, yeah. unhappy, yeah. hungover, cirrhotic. Yeah, yeah, it's like, that's Dehydrated. your vision. How long can you have a margarita on a beach? Like, maybe you can do that once every six months for, like, ten minutes, something like that. <laughs> it's not a vision. This 16-year-old fantasy of yes. paradise. It's like, well, yes. and it just doesn't work out. So, yeah. and, and the, thing, the, the thing is, is that the thing that sustains people through life really is the lifting of a worthwhile burden. No margaritas, huh? Well, I guess my future's looking a little bit more bleak. If we're not sat on the beach, lapping up the sun and enjoying a margarita, what do we do, Jordan? We like things simple. So, and then you often, like, a simple explanation is a good explanation unless it's too simple, but distinguishing between simple and too simple is no easy matter. We like, we like to know who's our friend and who's our enemy. And we like the feeling of unearned moral superiority. Such thing as earning anyways. So, and then, I mean, there's deeper and darker things that are underneath that. It's like the, the human proclivity to pull down those who have more than you. It's like these kids yeah. on the campuses who are claiming identity with the oppressed, you know, at somewhere like Yale. It's like, how in the world you can speak of oppression if you happen to be at Yale is beyond me. I mean, first of all, you're North American, which puts you in the top 1%. And then of North Americans, you're in the top 1%. So you're in the top 1% of 1%. But yet you, you want that. You want to have all the power that goes along with that. And you want to have the moral superiority that comes from being a, a representative of the oppressed. So that's exactly what you want. You want all the power and you want all the victimization at the same time. Interesting. So there's those who want the most and have the most, but will not admit that they have the most or want the most and that they have the least amount. What do you think that is? The class-based guilt idea, you know, it's, um, it doesn't seem to me self-evident that I'm to blame for slavery, for example. I mean, being a Canadian, it's a slightly different situation, I suppose. But the, the, the idea that as, the member, as a member of a culture that you're somehow responsible for the past uh, sins of that culture, let's say, it, it, it's a very, very anti-Western ethos. It, it goes along with this idea of class guilt because your group membership is the most important thing. If your group at some point in the past did something reprehensible, which of course every group has done, that's for sure, then you are de facto responsible in the present for that. Right. So class-based guilt is a no-no. What, you know, when... Right, class-based guilt is a no-no. And I'm guessing that agreeable people are the types of people who accept the class-based guilt, and that is why it's become so prevalent in today's society. What do disagreeable people do in this scenario? So, okay, so agreeable people are compassionate and polite. What are disagreeable people like? They're tough-minded, they're blunt, they're competitive, and they won't do a damn thing they don't want to do. So it isn't exactly that they're aggressive, although they will push you the hell out of their way if you're in the way. They're not, they're not 
like volatile like you are if you're high in, in, in neuroticism. It isn't defensive aggression, it's more like predatory aggression. It's dominance behavior. And so for someone who's, high, who's high, highly disagreeable, they look at the world as a place in which they can compete and win. And I'll tell you a story, I have a friend, I gave him my personality test, the big five aspect scale that Colin DeYoung developed huh, in my lab, and uh, I knew he was a disagreeable guy, and by interacting with him, um, I mean, he's even rude to people sort of spontaneously on the street. I actually like him quite a bit, he's very, very funny, he's also very conscientious, so you can trust him, but he's disagreeable as hell. And, uh, so I gave him this test because I thought it would be funny, and he came out as the most disagreeable person in 10,000. So, reasonably, reasonable in, in compassion, about 30th percentile, but like 0.001 in politeness. So he's extraordinarily blunt, and he'll just say absolutely anything, no matter how horrible it is. And he was often brought into corporations to sort of clean them up. So if a corporation was tilting and not doing well, they'd bring him in to find out who the useless people were and fire them. And I talked to him about that, because I've had the mis-opportunity to have to not have graduate students in my lab, for example, that weren't performing well, and I find it very, very difficult to, you know, dress someone down, and certainly difficult to fire them. I just hate it, because I'm actually quite an agreeable person, much to my chagrin. And I asked him about that, and I said, well, what do you do? You have to fire people all the time. How do you handle that? He says, handle it? I enjoy it! And I thought, wow, that's so interesting that someone would have that response. I said, well, what, what do you mean you enjoy it? He said, look, I go into these companies and I analyze the performance of groups of people, right? And there's, in those groups there are people who are really striving, really trying hard and working themselves really hard and being productive. And then there's these people that are just doing nothing. They're completely in the way. They don't carry their weight at all. They take advantage every chance they get. And they're always whining about why they can't work. It's like... I find out who they are, I call them into my office, and I tell them exactly what they've been doing. It's like, hit the road, buddy. You've had your, you've had your run of it. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, fair enough. You know, well, I, I can tell you, you know, I've had situations in my lab where I had underperforming graduate students. And one of the things that was really awful about that was that it was really hard on the high-performing graduate students. You know, because they felt that even being in the same category as the people who weren't working hard and pulling their weight, devalued what they were doing, you know, and that's exactly right, and so this is also why there's, there's a conscientiousness trait and an agreeableness trait, because conscientious people judge you on your accomplishments, right, they don't give a damn about your feelings, not a bit, it's like, are you doing the work or not, whereas agreeable people think, well, you know, your mother's sick, and you know, you've, you've got a bunch of family problems, and, and we all have to take care of each other, and it's no wonder that you're having a rough time, and, like, you can't say that one of those attitudes is correct and the other isn't correct. You can't say that. There wouldn't be those two dimensions if there wasn't something correct about both of them. But you can certainly point out that often they conflict. You know, and so the demand for, for inclusiveness and unity and care, and the demand for high-level performance in a hierarchical structure, they're very different orientations in the world. And so, it's complicated for people who are agreeable and conscientious. And Actually, I think often that large corporations and large, large institutions of any sort run on the unheralded labor of people who are high in agreeableness and high in conscientiousness, and they're disproportionately women. And my experience in large institutions has been that if you want to hire someone to exploit appropriately, no, not appropriately, if you want to hire someone to exploit productively, you hire middle-aged women who are hyper-conscientious and who are agreeable. 
because they'll do everything. They won't take credit for it and they won't complain. Wow, Jordan, that's quite a quandary. So what do we do when we've got two different sides, two different types of people? How do we get them to communicate? So you have to, first of all, stretch out your hand and say, look, you know, like I, I get that you see the world differently than me. And I also understand that there's a place for you and a place for me, even though that isn't the same place. And then it's necessary to also remember that, well, do you want to talk to people or do you want to do you want to fight with them? Because fighting is not pleasant and it goes very dark places very, very rapidly. OK, so what's the downside of a conversation like this? So something really good to know about marriage, it's like you can never win an argument with your wife. Like you could if you only lived with her for one day. Right. Guy won, see you later. Yeah. It's like, no, no, she's there the next day. Yeah. And then she- Ah, uh, she remembers the pain of the argument. Remember mm. that, yeah. Maybe even more than you remember it. <laughs> you know, and it also might be that she was right and you just out-argued her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's something that's really worth knowing too, because sometimes, you know, you'll have an argument with, well, let's say with your wife and she's got something to say and it's not very well articulated. Same could be f true for you. And so you can just brush it aside. But you don't want to brush it aside because maybe there's something there and if you don't address it then it's not like it's going to go away man it's going to grow so maybe you have to help her formulate her argument which is really annoying you know because you want to win you're having this dispute it's like i want to win it's like well you're not winning that game you're winning the game well i think about it as the game of games so what happens if you win one game jordan rather than the set of games well, you're the you're the winner and she's the loser, and then that's great because now you're married to a loser. <laughs> I mean, you know that's if you do that a hundred thousand times, then your marriage is over, and then and then they'll be hell to. Well, Jordan, this has been an illuminating conversation that has shown the importance of free speech and how speaking with different people really opens you up to different perspectives on life. Thank you so much for being on the show, and to everyone else, thank you for listening. This has been a Tale of Tales podcast. This has been Chris's Corner. I'm your host, Chris Taylor. And as always, I'll see you next time. Bye now. Free speech is the alternative to violence. And there's lots of people who like violence and who are waiting for the opportunity to use it. And I'm hoping that we can talk our way out of it.